Hello, my name is Richard Hermer, and together with my colleagues, Helen Mountfield and Murray Hunt, let me welcome you to what was the Matrix Law Pod, and from today is the newly rebranded Rule of Law Pod, brought to you by Matrix Chambers and Prospect Magazine. Many of you who followed the podcast since the Matrix inception two years ago will be familiar with our format. We started in the early days of the pandemic in part because we anticipated the challenges to civil liberties that lockdown might present, both at home and abroad. And also in part because it was a good excuse to meet up with colleagues and continue online conversations that we would otherwise have been having over coffee and lunches. But over time, it's broadened out to cover a whole range of topics that interest us in the intersection between law, politics and international affairs. And if you're listening for the first time, you might want to browse our archive of 29 previous episodes available on the Matrix website. You'll see a whole range of topics. We speak to leading human rights activists overseas about the challenges faced in their countries, be it India, Hungary, Israel or Hong Kong. We discuss the response to the shooting of George Floyd with David Lammy MP. We discuss US politics with David Cole of the ACLU, foreign policy and human rights with Lisa Nandy, healing fractures in society with Paul Van Zyl of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And we discuss the rule of law with Lord Newberger, former president of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And we've also had several episodes on Russia. We had a discussion with Bill Browder about securing accountability for Putin's human rights abuses. And more recently, on the eve of the current war, we had a chilling episode with Tatyana Glushkova of Memorial, Russia's most established human rights group, about the Putin state's liquidation of their organisation. And we've loved putting together these episodes, not least because of a passion for human rights and also an almost overwhelming sense that the rule of law at home and abroad is in a very fragile state. It's something we believe we need to talk about. And that's why we are delighted to be starting this new venture with Prospect Magazine. The magazine is one of the leading sources of intelligent, incisive analysis of precisely the issues that preoccupy us. We hope that our perspective as lawyers will be interest to regular Prospect subscribers. And we equally hope that the Matrix Law Pod subscribers will find Prospect Magazine and its other podcasts as engaging as we do. Now, in a moment, we're going to turn to the main topic of this episode, which is the war in Ukraine. But as this is the first episode on a whole new platform, I want to spend a few minutes with my colleagues looking forward to future episodes that we aim to bring you in the coming months. So, uh, Helen and Murray, to those who've been following the Matrix Law Pod as was, um, you're going to need no introduction. But perhaps because we're starting afresh as the Rule of Law Pod with Prospect Magazine, um, can I just ask you just to give a couple of lines of describing who you are and your the perspectives that you bring? So um, I'm going to start, Murray, with you. Thanks very much indeed, Richard. My name is Murray Hunt. I'm currently the director of the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law, which is an independent research institute specialising in the rule of law based in London. I was a founding member of Matrix many years ago. Uh, and I then spent a period of time working as legal advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights in the UK Parliament. So I've got a very uh, long standing interest in the intersection of rule of law, democracy and human rights, which is really at the heart of our podcast series. So I'm delighted to be taking part. Thank you, Richard. Helen. Yeah. Um, hello. My name's Helen Mountfield. I was also one of the founders of Matrix Chambers um, with Murray. In fact, I think 
some of the early meetings started in my kitchen. I have practiced at Matrix ever since then. Um, I'm particularly interested in equality law and human rights law. And I'm also now the principal at Mansfield College in Oxford, which is uh, a particularly open-minded uh, college. And we also the home to the Bonavera Institute of Human Rights. I'm much more of a kind of a jobbing barrister. So I'm just a human rights barrister. I do some international work such as Guantanamo or Iraq or kind of oil spills in places like Nigeria. And then I do some domestic uh, work against government. So that's that's who we are in terms of what we're interested in. Looking forward, I've kind of given a description of some of the kind of episodes that we and I should say other fantastic colleagues of ours in, in Matrix present i mean it we, we i suppose the three of us have done most of them together but we, there have also been some fantastic episodes from colleagues such as samantha knight and raza hussein bringing their kind of great expertise to, to, to areas but amongst the three of us looking forward what are you what are the topics of most interest or importance um helen starting with you well i think a lot of the big issues that we're facing now are the fragility of democratic societies that do respect uh, accountability through the democratic process and individual human rights in important fields like health and education and free speech. Um, I do think radical inequality and uh, the fragility of democracy are very closely linked. And of course, then we also have the climate crisis, which underpins everything else that we're thinking about. And I think those issues are really interrelated. And there are questions that concern people who are interested in political issues of the day that have a very important legal underpinning uh, that we hope to unravel. Murray, what's going to be on the agenda for you with the, with the Rule of Law podcast? I think for me, the recent events in Ukraine uh, really provide uh, the, the, the main focus for immediate concerns, I think. The um, implications for rule of law, democracy and human rights are pretty radical, both globally, regionally uh, and indeed nationally. I think globally, they really do provide an opportunity for a new approach to internationalism. Samuel Moyne wrote quite an interesting piece in the, the latest issue of Prospect, uh, in which he warned rightly about the danger of um, the Western powers defaulting to an old sort of Cold War mentality in their approach to the rules-based international order. I think he's rather too pessimistic. Um, and actually, there are some good positive signs of a, a new approach to internationalism, which is learning some of the lessons uh, we've learned the hard way from the experience of the last uh, decade or so. Um, regionally, I think there's a big challenge for the Council of Europe following the expulsion of Russia uh, from that organisation. There's a there's an opportunity there for that to have a reset through a, another leaders' summit to decide exactly what that organisation exists to do. Um, and for the UK, um, what does global Britain mean? Where does it fit in to this international reset, both regionally uh, and globally? And finally, on the purely national level, I think the big issue for me is, uh, is this government's approach to international law and international standards, where we see both through the National Nationality and Borders Bill, the Memorandum of Understanding with Rwanda, the Human Rights Act reform proposals, an approach to international law, um, which really appears to, on the one hand, say we're complying, but doing things which are flagrantly not complying. I mean, all of those sound fantastic, and I'm looking forward to kind of discussing them with you and with the kind of experts that we're able to bring in. I think for me, I mean, I agree with Helen that climate change is something that law has to address. I'm quite interested in talking about it, maybe with activists, about civil disobedience. When When's that justified? If this is an existential threat to the species um, and law isn't providing answers, when's it, when is it legitimate for civil disobedience to fill that kind of vacuum? 
The other kind of domestic issue I'm really interested in at the moment when we are discussing the kind of dilemma of families of heat or eat, which is what what role is there for developing social and economic rights, um, which is a kind of, a, 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 I think, a really interesting topic. And then more internationally, I'm um, one we've kind of discussed before, but I'd really like to come back to, which is about the role of Supreme Courts. And we've discussed the American one, and we're definitely going to come back to the American Supreme Court. But I'm more interested kind of more widely on the kind of rule of law issue in countries that often don't get the spotlight, but where there's some extraordinary stuff happening, whether that's Kenya or Malawi or actually in recent days in Pakistan. Those don't get a lot of coverage, but they are profoundly interesting and profoundly important topics that really looking forward to discussing with the two of you and experts from those countries. Anyway, look, that's exciting um, times ahead. But today's topic is, as I said, Ukraine. And our last two episodes of the Matrix uh, Law pod were on this very subject. And for those who listen to those, I'm going to give you apologies in advance because today's discussion is going to mirror much of what we went through on the last two occasions. But I think we've all felt two things. Firstly, you can't start at this juncture in history a new rule of law podcast without it addressing Russia and Ukraine. It would just be inappropriate. And the second thing I think we felt, and we found, I think the three of us have felt this into kind of discussions with friends who aren't lawyers, is that there is some confusion about the term and the legal terminology that's being thrown out there, whether it's, you know, so-and-so has committed a war crime or what justice might mean in the context of international law. And sometimes people are afraid to kind of ask kind of basic questions. So what we're aiming to do today, which is a, a, a bit of a repeat of the last two episodes, is, is to kind of effectively give a primer in international law to explain what some of these terms mean and how it might apply. And we are very lucky to uh, be joined by one of our colleagues at Matrix, who is one of the great experts in the laws of war. Uh, Andrew Clapham. Andrew is uh, the Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. He's widely consulted by governments and non-governmental organisations all around the world for his expertise on uh, laws of war. And his latest of a long stream of uh, uh, leading textbooks, his latest book, War, Uh, published by um, OUP. We're going to provide a link to uh, on the website platform. Andrew, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I I suppose I should begin with some declarations of interest uh, because you and I are both assisting the Ukrainian Prosecutor General in her uh, attempts to secure uh, accountability. And so to some degree, I suppose we're not independent experts. But just to be clear, we're asking, I'm asking questions and hopefully you're going to answer some in a kind of an independent capacity and neither of us are speaking on behalf of anybody uh, for the purposes of this podcast apart from ourselves. Can I um, begin then by just kind of setting out a framework for some of the questions um, that we're intending to ask you? And it seems to us that it would be helpful for people if we split questions into three parts and perhaps we can begin in a moment really on tapping you for a lesson, a tutorial in the kind of core components of the laws of war, because anybody who's reading the papers or listening to broadcast media at the moment is facing a kind of a barrage of technical terms from war crimes to genocide to crimes against humanity to aggression. And I think it'd be really helpful for people just to have some understanding 
as to precisely what those terms mean and perhaps a bit of their historical context. So that's area one. Area two then is using that framework and if you could help guide us through its application to the facts on the ground insofar as we know them in Ukraine so that we can gauge what's going on in Ukraine through that framework of law. And then thirdly and finally, can we discuss the notions of accountability? Is is Russia going to be held accountable for what it's doing? And and if it is, through what mechanisms? Either mechanisms that exist or mechanisms we've got to create. So it's okay with you. We'll ask questions around those three areas. And could we then just start with the basics? What do we mean when we talk about war crimes? Well, war crimes are violations of the laws of war which attach to an individual so there are all sorts of violations of the geneva conventions that we could speak about but only some of them are considered war crimes and the obvious ones would be killing prisoners of war or harming your prisoners of war with serious injury attacking civilians indiscriminate bombing of the civilian population and so on And so those particular violations of the laws of war mean that an individual could be prosecuted. Now, there are different venues for that prosecution. Um, Individual could be prosecuted in the territory where the act was committed by the authorities. So in this case, uh, Ukrainians caught by Russia in Russia could be prosecuted by the Russian authorities and Russians in Ukraine could be prosecuted by the Ukrainian authorities. But what the international press have focused on is the fact that in this conflict, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over the crimes committed in Ukraine. So it too can prosecute the war crimes. Andrew, we'll come back to the question of what happens when you break those laws um, a little later on. But can I just keep the focus for the moment on what these laws are? So you mentioned the Geneva Conventions, and that's a, a series of predominantly four conventions that were created in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, And as you said, they set out um, a series of rules covering a range of topics uh, 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 um, that arise in armed conflicts. Um, Is that the whole body? Is that what we mean by the laws of war? Is there a wider body? There's actually a wider body. In this conflict, there's something called Additional Protocol 1, which applies because both Russia and Ukraine are parties to that treaty. And it's particularly important because it covers things like attacks on the civilian population and disproportionate attacks where there may be a military objective, but the civilian damage is excessive in relation to the military advantage anticipated. And that is what we've seen with the massive uh, bombardment. So it's those crimes, what are called grave breaches of additional protocol one, which are going to be the focus of most prosecutors, I would imagine. And then there are a series of crimes which are reach back to the Hague Conventions and which are now considered customary international law. An obvious one would be pillage, um, an old war crime. That means stealing something for your own private use when you're in the invasion phase or during the occupation. So that if you like, there are three different sources of law. There are the Geneva Conventions, Additional Protocol 1, and then customary international law. And customary, by customary international law, for non-lawyers out there, what we mean by that is uh, international law that is established through custom and state practice and through everybody recognising that what lawyers would call opinion juris, um, everybody recognising that those are legal standards that everybody has to comply with. Yes, so some of them would be quite ancient, like using poisoned weapons or exploding bullets, things like that. 
where they wouldn't necessarily be included in the Geneva Conventions because those are sort of modern conventions to protect what are called the victims of war, prisoners of war, civilians in occupied territory, the shipwrecked and so on. And some of these older rules have never actually been put down in, in specific treaties which create a war crime. And we often hear um, the phrase international humanitarian law. Is that just another phrase for the laws of war? It is really. It's a, it's a modern expression. Um, uh, laws of war is older. When people use the expression humanitarian law, they're often stressing what I've referred to as the Geneva Convention's reach to protect the victims of war. So, for example, it's specifically focused on the treatment of prisoners of war or the treatment of civilians in occupied territory. That's humanitarian. Whereas other rules, I don't know, to do with um, prohibited weapons like an exploding bullet, it, it, of course, it's humanitarian at one level, but it, it's more about the laws and customs of war, properly so called. So that's one element of the law that governs armed conflicts, international armed conflicts, such as the one we're seeing at the moment. Um, can I ask you about another couple of terms that are bandied around um, and precisely what they mean? Um, one is the crime of aggression. Um, what, what, what does that mean in, in law? Well, when a state invades another state, that's going to be a violation of the UN Charter unless uh, they've got some excuse such as self-defence or the Security Council has authorised it. And... The General Assembly set up a, a list of different acts that could be considered the act of aggression, so invasion and bombardment, but interestingly also allowing your territory to be used by one state to invade another state is also considered an act of aggression. A blockade is an act of aggression. So there are quite a long list of, of acts of aggression. And then when it talks about the crime of aggression, what the Rome Statute and the, the international law definitions are referring to are a leadership crime where an individual in charge of the armed forces of a state is going to be responsible for what's called a manifest violation of the Charter. So an obvious and clear violation of the prohibition on the use of force. And that is relevant um, in the current context, as it is in any international armed conflict between two states. So that an individual leader who has not much to do with what's going on on the battlefield for having ordered the troops in in the first place could be prosecuted. And that's what happened after the Second World War for the German leadership and the Japanese leadership. And when you say the Rome Statute, just so we're clear, that's the, the statute that governs the International Criminal Court that sits in The Hague. Yes. Yeah, so interestingly, in 2010, a definition of the crime of aggression was inserted into the Rome Statute so that in theory, and we can come to why it doesn't work later, in theory, the International Criminal Court in The Hague would be able to prosecute a leader for the crime of aggression. Can I ask you about two other um, phrases? Um, the first one, I think, again, um, arose through the Nuremberg process, which is the, the phrase, the a crime against humanity. What, what do people mean by that? What does it mean in law? Well, I mean, a simple way to think about it is it's a massive violation of human rights. And again, there's a long list of the different types of crimes against humanity. It could be slavery, torture, extermination. But it is uh, directed against the civilian population and it's part of a policy and part of a widespread and systematic attack. And what is perhaps special about crimes against humanity is it doesn't really need to be connected to the armed conflict at all. It's, it's a self-standing crime now. 
and it can be committed against your own civilian population or the enemy's civilian population. And it's much more flexible in a way than war crimes law, which has to be connected to a specific armed conflict. Now, um, those of us, and there'll be many of us who've read uh, our colleague Philippe Sands' fantastic book, East West Street, will know a little bit about the history of um, the emergence of crimes against humanity in international law, but also genocide uh, and the history of the creation of the law around genocide. What exactly do we mean by genocide? So here the focus is on an intention to destroy an ethnic or national group in whole or in part. And uh, as Philippe's book explains very well, it was uh, Raphael Lemkin who originally was concerned about the fate of the Armenians, among other minorities, before the Second World War, and then obviously the Jewish population in the Second World War. Um, and the idea was to focus on the fact that there was a determined policy to eliminate a particular ethnic or religious identity on a people. Um, and that word gets, genocide gets thrown around a lot because it, it sort of suggests that this is somehow the worst of all the crimes and that states have to react um, when a state is accused of genocide. In fact, the obligation to react is, is really the same for war crimes, aggression, crimes against humanity and genocide. The problem with genocide, is, as you your question sort of hints at a bit, is that it's quite difficult to prove that, that an individual had the intent to eliminate a group as opposed to just destroy a town or to kill a particular civilian. But it's the fourth, if you like, of this category of, of four different crimes than that, that the International Criminal Court and indeed states around the world can prosecute. Andrew, that's a really kind of helpful primer, I think, for all of us on the kind of the key, the key bits of law that are governing this armed conflict. And so can I turn then to the kind of the second part of the discussion? which is how we use that framework to understand and to calibrate these horrendous scenes that we're seeing unfold in front of us in real time. And let's maybe just kind of start with that on a kind of chronologically um, at the beginning. You've described what we mean by aggression in international law and the crime of aggression. Is there any way of analysing what Russia has done by way of an invasion of another sovereign nation as anything other than aggression? And what what defences would they possibly be able to raise to that charge? Well, there, there are two that have been hinted at by the Russian government. The first is that they were invited in by two independent states in order to protect them from aggression by Ukraine. And so in international law, if a, a state invites you in to protect it, uh, that indeed would be a, a reasonable reason to use force. The problem here is that it's only Russia that recognizes those two states as having statehood and being entitled to invite another state in. For the rest of the world, those regions or entities are within Ukraine and don't have the authority to invite Russia in. And I think um, that would be the mainstream opinion. And, and the second argument which Russia has sort of hinted at is that it needs to go in to protect people from a, an impending genocide, a sort of humanitarian intervention. And that argument is actually being tested by the Ukrainians at the International Court of Justice, because one of the interesting things about the Genocide Convention is that it has a clause at the end which says that if two states have a dispute about the application of that treaty, you can go to the International Court of Justice. 
And in this case, Ukraine went to the International Court of Justice to say, well, Russia is claiming that we're committing genocide and they're therefore entitled to use force. And we'd like you to rule on that. And the, the International Court of Justice in a provisional order asked for an immediate ceasefire and for Russia to withdraw. But as you know, they haven't complied with that order. Just before we come to look at other um, kind of aspects of the, the conflict through the prism of the legal framework. I just ask you something just just kind of about that Russian position, because it seems to be a feature of many conflicts, even when you have the most flagrant violations of, never mind law, but all kind of all human norms, that the perpetrators always seek to justify what they're doing under the colour of law. I mean, they're, they're hard to think of any conflicts in which people kind of admit to being lawless. I mean, I think there are two things going on with this Russian justification. One is, it's kind of interesting that they have paid attention to the law, but in fact, the Security Council members and the International Court of Justice and, and the states around the world are obviously not convinced by that. And the second thing is that I think it's a little for domestic consumption that people within Russia are being told that this is necessary in order to protect people from genocide and that the Ukrainians are attacking uh, Russian-speaking people or Russians within Ukraine and that therefore this is necessary to save lives. And that argument, I think, for a while can have some traction. And so it's, yes, it's legalistic, but I think it's also uh, by way of legitimizing and justifying and, and gathering support for this. And the sort of genocide argument uh, is obviously the, the most convincing one to, to play out at the national level. Can I ask you then about um, breaches of the Geneva Convention and other aspects of international humanitarian law? Um, how do we seek to understand the scenes that we are seeing of the shelling of civilian areas. What justification, if any, can there be for that type of military action? I mean, the justification that is offered and that will be offered if, when these things come to some sort of trial or accountability process is that there were military objectives hidden or within the civilian population and therefore Russia was entitled to bombard that area because it was trying to destroy, I don't know, an anti-aircraft base or, or truck or whatever it was, or that soldiers um, were hiding amongst the civilian population and that they could be uh, attacked from the air. Now, I think, without getting into the details, the, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe have produced a long report about the allegations of violations of international humanitarian law, and particularly for you know these famous uh, incidents, the Maripol um, maternity home and the, the theater. They say, you know, that it's very difficult to find any suggestion that there was any military objective nearby or, or within those buildings. And so it doesn't really make sense. But that will be for a prosecutor to show that there was nothing around or and it would be for others to try and suggest that they have evidence that there was. I mean, putting aside the niceties that intra-governmental organisations or prosecutor authorities might have to kind of dance around for, for obvious diplomatic reasons or prosecutorial reasons. I mean, it's, it's just frankly possible isn't it to look at what we have we see which is entire civilian areas devastated bombing of a theater where the presence of children was written in massively high letters outside that would be visible to anybody uh, in an aerial position i mean it, it's impossible isn't it to see how that could ever be justified in international law 
I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you asked me what will the justification be that's offered, and I offered it, and yeah. it's clearly not credible. But I mean, they do make some effort to go down that route. I mean, I was watching television the other night, and the um, Russian authorities took people through the theater and pointed out, you know, the discarded machine guns and uh, heavy weaponry that they said, you know, had been there at the time. And so the, the argument will be um, that there were military objectives within the civilian population. But obviously, the amount of destruction of civilian objects and the number of civilians killed mean that even the OSCE uh, expert report says, you know, we find it incredible that so many people could be killed and we have not found any evidence that there were any military objectives there. But that's the test that people will... Um, be using. I think it won't be difficult. Sorry, Andrew, even if they're military objectives, even if there is, it's got to be proportionate as a matter of law, hasn't it? It has got to be proportionate. And that's when things get very, very difficult for a war crimes prosecutor, because it's not the resulting effect and the damage that you find. It's what the military commander anticipated as his advantage and how many civilians he expected to die. So in order to be able to prove that, you have to, as the OSCE kept saying in their report, you have to have access to military documentation to know what the calculation was. But I think the short answer is the prosecutor is going to say no attempt was made to distinguish between the civilian population and military objectives. And therefore, I find this is an attack on the civilian population. And I'm not even going to get into the proportionality calculation. And that's what I'm guessing a prosecutor would do. And I'm guessing they will also go after the individual civilians who have been, if you read the reports, apparently found with their hands tied behind their back and shot in the head. These are obviously executions of civilians, which would be a war crime. And one doesn't need to get into what was the military objective or what was the necessity, because there can't be any if you kill a civilian in execution like that. Can I ask you about um, another military tactic? I mean, at the outset of the conflict, there was talk about a siege of um, Kiev that in classic senses, the sieges didn't come to pass. But we're speaking as Maripol is about to fall, but where Putin is apparently about to lay siege to the steelworks in which potentially thousands of people are still present um, underground. What's the position with the legality of sieges uh, in international law? I mean, I think it's easier really to point to, to the war crime rather than discuss the criteria as to how to make it legal. If you destroy what's necessary for the survival of the civilian population, or if you hinder the delivery of humanitarian assistance when people are starving, you're committing the war crime of starvation of the civilian population. So I think denying people the chance to leave or denying uh, food coming into that area so that the civilian population can survive is a war crime of starvation. Now, you can say it's part of your siege, but there's still the war crime of starvation of the civilian population, uh, whether or not you're engaging in a siege. So I think I would say rather than everybody focusing on siege as a legitimate tactic of war, which I think is a, is a misleading way to think about this, we should be talking about the war crime of starvation of a civilian population. Can I ask you about genocide and its application here, which is potentially a more kind of nuanced debate? Some people, I mean, not least President Biden recently, describing what's going on as genocide. President Macron, much more reticent to endorse that description. 
can we understand what's going on in terms of genocide and why why this reticence amongst some politicians but not others declare this to be genocide what's the significance of that i think it's um it's very political in the sense that politicians as i said before want to to use the g word to show how horrified they are and i think their their reticence or not these days depends just on how many lawyers have gotten to them and how recently to say just be careful because we don't really have much evidence of this and if you throw it around it looks like we're not serious there's not much advantage to prosecuting genocide rather than crimes against humanity or war crimes. Uh, the sentencing is going to be the same. The prosecutor is going to have a much harder job. As far as I know, the prosecutor of the ICC is not looking at genocide. He's only looking at war crimes and crimes against humanity. And I think as far as I've seen in the rest of the world, those who are collecting evidence are spending their time on the war crimes evidence and not necessarily on genocide. It, it's as I say, taken on a bit of a life of its own in this conflict and in the Myanmar conflict because of the fact that it's one way to get to the International Court of Justice, which you can't usually do for war crimes or crimes against humanity. And so that's why it, it sort of keeps popping up on the news. And obviously, it's, it's an emotive word, and it suggests that people are being eliminated, you know, in the tens of thousands, over hundreds of thousands, and therefore it sort of ups the ante. But there's nothing particular about prosecuting genocide that, that changes anything. And I think most people who work in this area know that it's actually rather difficult. Can I then turn to the kind of final uh, section um, of our questions for you, Andrew, which is accountability? Because, again, on a daily basis, we hear political leaders declaring that Russia will be held accountable that justice uh, will come to the people of Ukraine and the victims of Russian crimes. Uh, I just want to explore what that might look like, as well as just how realistic that is. You've mentioned the case brought by Ukraine before the International Court of Justice, but in terms of prosecution for war crimes or crimes against humanity, in terms of the, the international forum for that is, that, is that the International Criminal Court? It is, yes. Um, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and war crimes and genocide if necessary. Only a few people will be prosecuted in the International Criminal Court. And of course, they have to be surrendered to the court. So one has to, to have them physically. There's no crime in absentia there. That's one route. To be honest, the same crimes, uh, and in fact more, can be prosecuted at the national level, both in Ukraine and in Russia. And in any one of about over 160 countries around the world that will have legislation to prosecute war crimes. Now, as I said at the very beginning, this conflict is a bit special because both parties have ratified additional protocol one. So the war crimes that we're talking about can be prosecuted abroad and one doesn't need a nationality link. So, for example, they could be prosecuted in the UK, these crimes, under the Geneva Conventions Act, not under the ICC Act, which you'll know relates to nationality and territory. But because we're talking about the Geneva Conventions and Additional Protocol 1 and grave breaches, it creates, if you like, a sort of universal jurisdiction. Every state in the world is a party to the Geneva Conventions. That means that a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions, killing a prisoner of war, for example, can be prosecuted in every single state in the world. And a lot of those states do have the legislation 
prosecution in force to do it. It's hardly ever been used. But my prediction is people will be prosecuted for these war crimes at the ICC, surely, but also in many states around the world. And of course, in Ukraine, where they already obviously have Russian prisoners, and they are going to be prosecuting them. So what this means in in real terms is that any Ukrainian general, uh, I beg your pardon, Russian general, who is culpable of war crimes, who travels to, let's say, the United Kingdom at any stage, because there are no limitations uh, on these crimes, is liable to arrest here, trial here and imprisonment here. I mean, one could even go further because the the grave breaches regime puts an obligation on every state to search for and prosecute or extradite these people. So it's a really quite a robust regime, which, as I said, normally doesn't apply because you're not dealing with an interstate conflict and you're not dealing with an additional protocol one conflict. Um, And so the, the sort of legal obstacles are quite large to prosecuting war crimes abroad. On this one, uh, it ought to be easier. Now, of course, for that general, your hypothetical general, one would still need to show either that he or she ordered the crimes or participated in them, or under command responsibility, had people under his effective control, and he failed to prevent the ongoing act or to punish it um, at the time. So one needs to know which generals were in charge of which troops on which days and in which parts of Ukraine. But that's relatively easy, I would have thought, for a prosecutor to be able to work out. I mean, aren't we? We're, we're kind of in a new era in some senses, aren't we, in respect of prosecutions for war crimes and crimes against humanity? Because there's no doubt that, that there have been uh, war crimes and atrocious acts done in armed conflicts for uh, centuries. But the difference is now is that people are capturing data in a way that was beyond the contemplation of even those, I suspect, in the more recent criminal tribunals to do with Yugoslavia and Rwanda. We're in a, we're in a new world that makes it in many ways easier to prove the commission of crimes. I mean, the, the, the obstacles are, are still there, but you're absolutely right that the satellite imagery that can be captured and that can prove um, which units were in which places on which days and how much destruction there was and where particular military objectives were at the time and how far away they were from the civilian population, all that has increased. And as you say, there is quite a lot, it seems, of sort of intercept information between people communicating on their cell phones, which make it clear not only where somebody was, but how much they knew at the time. And a lot of a criminal prosecution, as you know better than me, is about showing the knowledge that an individual has and their intention at the time. And I think some of that will be relatively easier than in some other conflicts. Yes. Andrew, two other questions uh, for me. Firstly, about support and military intervention. So there's a distinction that seems to be drawn between providing direct military um, support for Ukraine, troops on the ground, aircraft enforcing no-fly zones. So that on the one hand, but yet, which is said to be uh, untenable, but yet at the same time, we're sending very sophisticated weaponry that is downing Russian planes and destroying uh, Russian tanks. Is is that something that's is governed at all by law or is that simply in the realms of realpolitik? 
Well, there are some legal consequences which flow. Um, so if your troops are on the ground, as you put it, and you're participating in the conflict, then the Geneva Conventions apply to you as a party to the conflict, as opposed to a non-party. A non-party still has this obligation to prosecute grave breaches, but it doesn't have other obligations. But as you quite rightly suggest, there's high politics involved here. So what the West is really second-guessing is, at what point does President Putin think that we are actually targetable and we've entered this war? What kind of weaponry is it that's going to tip the balance into this being an armed conflict between us and him as opposed to us helping the Ukrainians to fight him? And I think nobody quite knows where that line is. At one point, people thought if you supplied MiGs to Ukraine, that was an act of war and considered you were entering the war. And now people don't seem to think that anymore. So I think that's a question of second guessing exactly at what point the Russian government would think we're now going to engage directly with NATO forces as opposed to only with Ukrainian forces. And that's high politics. That's not going to be determined by any legal distinction. Finally, for me, Andrew, can I just kind of ask you to kind of give a kind of a long view. I mean, you have almost unparalleled experience in international humanitarian law, in advising governments and non-governmental organisations. But many people are very sceptical or cynical about the possibility of justice actually being achieved here. Putin is seemingly untouchable domestically in control of his media there. There's no kind of checks and balances internally. There have been some captures of some troops, um, but he's secure, it would be said. And so the prospects of justice are just illusory. Do you do you share that cynical view? No, I don't. I mean, I think some people will be prosecuted in the short term. And as you suggested, you know, the Yugoslavia prosecutions went on for a long time, you know, some of them 20 years after the fact, including major leaders prosecuted much later. So I think there will be prosecutions and there will be an element of justice. I think one of the interesting issues in this conflict is, as you say, the the act of aggression means that all of the damage that has done is the responsibility of Russia. Um, it's not just the damage that was done in committing a war crime. It's going to be all of the civilian damage and all of the damage to the military and all of the military killed and so on. And, you know, can one have reparation for that? Well, you can say, you know, well, it seems very unlikely. But in fact, as you know, a lot of the Russian government's funds have been frozen. And one can read about plans to say, well, some of this money maybe should be used for the reconstruction of Ukraine. Now, of course, you know, while the Russian government, you know, is important for exporting oil and gas and, and states feel beholden to it, that might not happen. But there may come a point at which people do feel that that money should be better used, not just um, in a frozen bank account, but for the reconstruction of Ukraine. But for that to happen, there's going to have to be, as you say, some sort of change in terms of the government and the, and the real political power games um, that affect how the West deals with Russia. But I think that Russia ought to pay reparations. And I have a feeling that at some point in history, reparations will be paid. Murray. Andrew, you mentioned that there are advantages in prosecuting for war crimes or crimes against humanity compared to uh, prosecuting for genocide. Is there any advantage in prosecuting for the crime of aggression over prosecuting for war crimes or crimes against humanity? I would say yes, because it's very simple to show who was in charge of the troops that went in and who took those decisions easier in a way than proving who was involved in a decision to attack 
the theatre and so on. Um, so if one could get hold of the individuals um, who are the leaders of this invasion, then there is a clear advantage to doing it. I think it also sends a message to other leaders um, that it's not enough to say, oh, well, I'm not going to be involved in war crimes. I'm just in charge of the state. There is responsibility for taking decisions which involve an unlawful use of force against another state. And I think an aggression prosecution would be incredibly uh, important, not just for the sense of justice, but for the educational effect to all leaders around the world who are considering launching an attack on another state. Maybe that's the educationalist in me coming out. And there are some proposals at the moment to create a special tribunal uh, to prosecute the crime of aggression specifically against Ukraine by Russia because of the legal obstacles that currently exist to being able to do that before the International Criminal Court. I don't know whether you want to comment at all on on those proposals. There are various ways, of course, of um, establishing such a tribunal. It could be done under UN auspices or Council of Europe auspices, or it could be done by uh, agreement between Ukraine and a number of other countries. But just in principle, interested in your views about whether that might be um, worth pursuing? No, I think it is worth pursuing um, whichever model uh, you choose. I think it's important that this is seen to be a, an international effort. Um, Ukraine would have to be involved for complex uh, legal reasons, but I think it is uh, worth pursuing. It would have to be, as you say, some new tribunal because there is no point in expecting that this can happen at the International Criminal Court because the amendment to the Rome Statute says you cannot prosecute in that court an individual who's a national of a non-state party. So no Russians um, could be prosecuted for um, aggression, nor could Ukrainians for that matter nor Belarusians. So the ICC is is hampered. But I think the fact that this is a massive aggression and the massive destruction that has happened deserves to be treated um, in a trial of the crime of aggression. Yes. Helen. Yes, I'm just interested in many of the reports of rape in Ukraine and whether that's being used as a tool of war or is something that always happens in law and just to what extent there are kind of positive obligations that can be enforced in relation to that sort of crime no it's um it's a particular type of war crime as you suggest which is not just stuff that happens in war but often designed to make people move out of a certain area to humiliate a particular nationality or people. It's often wrapped up with all kinds of issues about the status of women in society um, and male bonding rituals. And and there's sort of complex reasons for it. It's clearly a war crime um, and it doesn't need to be necessarily part of a policy. All sexual violence in times of armed conflict um, is going to be a war crime. And I think one, I mean, I know you didn't mean to put it like this, but I think one has to be very uh, careful not to allow the idea that sexual violence will happen in all armed conflicts and therefore, you know, it's just to be expected. It absolutely should be punished and it is not acceptable. I know you weren't suggesting that, but there is a, a sort of tendency out there to say, well, of course, there'll be looting and of course, there'll be torture. It's a war. But, I mean, in the 21st century, uh, all of that torture should be prosecuted and all of the sexual violence should be prosecuted. It's, uh, for my own work on this, one of the problems is that the sexual violence in armed conflict, we tend to focus on the rape as a tactic of war and and the people who have been raped by the soldiers. But unfortunately, the, the domestic violence in terms of armed conflict is actually the greater part of the sexual violence. 
And there is a danger that in focusing on war crimes law and individual criminal accountability at the international level, one loses the impetus to tackle and provide protection for women affected by sexual violence in time of armed conflict, as opposed to those who were specifically targeted. And, and that's a problem then that goes to the work of NGOs who sort of shift their focus onto war crimes law, the focus of people like us who, you know, focus on the International Criminal Court. And I would just plead that all, all the sexual violence that is ongoing um, in both countries, Russia and in Ukraine, um, needs to be the focus of our attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly didn't mean to say, well, this is just stuff that happens. What I did mean is that, as you say, some of this will happen in apparently private um, contexts or it'll be troops on the ground. It'll be very hard to identify individuals. And the question is whether you can use either human rights law or some form of the laws of war to impose positive obligations really on both states, I suppose, in the terms of the structures they're putting in place to try and do something about this. I mean, absolutely. That, that, that There are ongoing obligations of the Russian government and the Ukrainian government under the European Convention on Human Rights, for Russia at least until September. But um, in our work, I, I work on sexual violence in South Sudan, and one of the ways to tackle this in terms of the positive obligation is to think about the command responsibility. So as you say, often the women won't be able to identify their attacker. They might be masked um, or the, the situation might be that they're just not going to be able to recognize them either because of the trauma or that there's no reason that they would ever come across them again. But the investigators will be able to work out who was the commander at the time. And when the commander knows that these rapes are ongoing, their failure to prevent it gives rise to a separate criminal accountability. And once commanders realize that they're going to be held accountable for the sexual violence committed by their troops, that is the only hope, I think, of trying to uh, deter uh, such action. And there can be a sort of element of justice then because the, the story will come out and the commander will be punished, even if the individual soldiers can't necessarily ever be found again. Andrew, we're going to end it there, if we may. Thank you so much. It's just been invaluable trying to understand what that legal framework is. And it, it really is helpful in kind of getting an understanding as to how to assess what it is that we are seeing these kind of dreadful, dreadful images. And some degree of hope can be taken from what you're saying about the possibility of accountability for these dreadful crimes in due course. Thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure.